Sucking up asteroid dust and deep space delivery. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. After launching from Cape Canaveral, Florida back in 2016, OSIRIS-REx is about to execute one of its most critical mission objectives, suck up some dust on a faraway asteroid. The spacecraft has been orbiting the asteroid Bennu since arriving back in 2018, uncovering all sorts of interesting things about this ancient space rock. On October 20th, it will perform a tag maneuver, sucking up a small sample of dust to send back home. This dust, once here on Earth, could help us understand how life formed in the solar system. It's a question scientists like NASA's Jason Dworkin have spent their careers unpacking. We'll speak with Dworkin about this mission and how he hopes to unlock the secrets of life here on Earth. Then, NASA's Gateway is a mini space station set to orbit the moon. But what's a space station without supplies? Kennedy Space Center's Mark Weiss heads the agency's Deep Space Logistics Program. We'll talk about the plan to ship food, water, and spacesuits to the moon ahead of astronaut missions in the next few years. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? Ten seconds. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And liftoff of OSIRIS-REx. Its seven-year mission to boldly go to the asteroid Bennu and back. OSIRIS-REx is halfway through a seven-year mission to visit an asteroid, collect a sample of dirt from its surface, and send it back home. Locked on the surface of this ancient asteroid is evidence of early life in our solar system, evidence scientists like NASA's Jason Dworkin are itching to get their hands on. Dworkin is a NASA astrobiologist and a senior scientist for the mission. He joins us now to talk about OSIRIS-REx and why he's so excited to get his hands on some asteroid dust. So my background is in astrobiology. So I'm interested in the origin and evolution of life on Earth and possibly elsewhere. And so to understand how life got started in the solar system, we need to understand how organics uh, and, and other primitive materials uh, found their way to the early Earth or other bodies. Uh, and the best way to understand that is to look at the evidence left behind by the formation of the solar system, looking at the very ancient, very primitive rocks that contain organic compounds in the same processes that were happening four and a half billion years ago when life was getting started. So my, um, my fascination is to have ever greater constraint on understanding the chemistry present on the origin of life. To do that, we need a pristine sample from an ancient asteroid, and that's what Osiris-Rex does. So I've been working on Osiris-Rex since um, its previous incarnation as Osiris in 2004, and working ever since this, uh, the TAG event will be uh, so far the apex uh, getting ready for a sample return in 2023, which is when my science actually really begins. You, you mentioned you need a pristine sample. Um, can you explain how having uh, a pristine sample from the early formations of our solar system is going to help you uh, figure out where life came from? Parts of the ancient solar system rain down the Earth all the time uh, in the form of meteorites. Uh, meteorites invariably land on the ground and become almost instantly contaminated with biology. Biology on the Earth is ubiquitous and uh, it's tenacious. 
So it finds uh, compounds in, in meteorites and starts to eat them right away. And so we can do a lot of very clever chemistry to understand what sorts of, of compounds are, uh, are present in the meteorite, but there's some things you just can't figure out with the overprint of biological contamination. Uh, and, and it's almost, it's always there. Uh, so some questions you can't answer, like uh, the nature of the uh, chirality of the left and right handedness in some, uh, some amino acids, for example, uh, looking at contamination of, of biological compounds, which are the ones that are most interesting to understand the ingredients that went into the origin of life. Furthermore, the meteorites we get on the Earth, uh, with very few exceptions, we don't know where they came from. Did they come from an asteroid or a comet? Which asteroid? Which comet? So how do our observations of uh, using astronomy to look at small bodies in the solar system relate to the things we find on the ground and then can study in the laboratory? The Sarsrex unites these two together. So we can, we've observed the, the asteroid from the ground and from space-based assets in situ using our array of spectrometers and cameras uh, and laser altimeter and then collect the sample, bring it back to Earth in 2023 and study it in microscopic detail uh, to, to unite these different, uh, different aspects of science. Jason, we were talking before we started recording um, how you and I have crossed paths before, and it was before OSIRIS-REx launched, and you gave a briefing to make sure that us reporters didn't contaminate <laughs> the spacecraft because you want that pristine sample, right? Tell me a little bit about all of the things that went into making sure OSIRIS-REx was clean and, and you won't get these kind of these false readings of, of little buggers that hitched a ride from Earth uh, to this asteroid and then might hitch a ride back. How, how did you clean uh, all the equipment before it launched? So OSIRIS-REx has a contamination uh, requirement, uh, which is fairly different from the things you might have heard of for the Mars rovers. Uh, in this case, on Mars, you need a, a spacecraft that is devoid of active biology because you don't want to contaminate Mars with biological organisms that can replicate. For Salus Rex, that's not sufficient because a dead bug still has the same chemistry as a living bug uh, in essence. And so we needed to get the, the spacecraft clean of um, of molecules that are of, of potential interference, as well as clean of inorganic compounds, which would be important uh, uh, geochronometers and other, other factors to understand the geochemistry of Bennu. Uh, in addition, because this is a sample return mission, uh, we can't limit our understanding based on the, uh, the instrumentation on the spacecraft. This is based, we have to, to uh, clean and preserve based on the sensitivity of future instrumentation, instruments perhaps not even invented yet. And so to arm against that, um, we have a campaign of cleaning as well as knowledge. And so we archived materials that went into building the spacecraft, uh, archived uh, uh, witness plates, that is uh, pieces of, of metal uh, and, and uh, silicon that were exposed to the environment that can then be compared apples to apples with, this, with the sample on the same instruments as future scientists will, will analyze. Plus the spacecraft has witness plates on board, which uh, 
open and close at various times to collect information on the environment the spacecraft has been in and that the samples have seen. So uh, one of the, the, the most exciting things about OSIRIS-REx for me is that 75% uh, of the sample that we bring back is preserved for the future. So uh, samples will be saved for people not yet born using techniques not yet invented, answer questions not yet asked. So since we don't know what those questions are, we need to give those future scientists the information that they need to be able to make decisions, to be able to uh, test samples and test background materials to get the best science out of this information we bring back, out of the sample we bring back. What grabbed the headlines recently is um, the uh, discovery of phosphine gas in, in the atmosphere of Venus, and that was done using spectroscopy. It, it is, what's the advantage to having a physical sample like this to look for these um, chemical signatures or, or, or these materials as opposed to just you know sending a, a, a remote sensing instrument out to Bennu instead? So remote sensing instruments are uh, are amazing machines. They're very small. I use very very low power. Uh, they um, uh, have really changed our understanding of the solar system and the universe. They have the advantage that you can look at something that's very very far away, but the level of detail you get is low. Uh, it's still phenomenal compared to uh, not having that kind of instrumentation. But compared to what you can do in the best laboratories around the world, it, it just doesn't compare. The, the instrumentation uh, that will be used is not only too power-hungry and too large to fit on the spacecraft. Some of it's too large to fit on the launch pad. Uh, there are um, uh, synchrotron uh, beams that are the size of buildings, uh, multi-billion dollar instrumentation that just cannot be shrunk down, that can analyze the sample almost atom by atom, uh, things you just cannot do in space. Uh, there, we just don't have, have that ability, and in many cases, the physics just doesn't allow it. So having the, having the sample uh, brought back in Earth with uh, the best minds, the best laboratories over generations, perhaps, on Earth, looking at the sample in different ways is an amazing boon. If you want to compare by analogy, look at uh, what was understood from lunar science by the uh, uh, surveyor, ranger, and um, uh, Luna missions, followed by the revolution in uh, planetary science and lunar science by the samples coming back with Apollo. Uh, having sample science in the laboratory is unparalleled. Mm -hmm. And obviously having them, as you mentioned, is for longevity. You know, the, the people that are going to be examining some of these samples aren't even born yet. The instrument's not even invented. Um, but I've got to think that you're really excited to get your hands on these samples right away. Uh, how quickly will it, are you able to, to start analyzing this once it gets back here on Earth? The, the sample return canister uh, comes back, lands in Utah um, just before 9 a.m. on Sunday, uh, September 24th, 2023. Um it is then uh, removed from uh, the, the, the sample canister is uh, disarmed, the battery is removed, uh, the backup mortar for the parachute, parachute is removed. It's transported to Houston. That all takes about a day. In Houston, uh, the sample return canister will be opened um, to allow us to get at the sample canister that has the 
the sampling system inside is called a TAGSAM, touch and go sampling, sample acquisition mechanism. And that will have between um, a minimum of 60 grams and, and a maximum of two kilograms of material. Uh, we'll open that up and then begin uh, delegating the sample out. Uh, like I said, the, the sample team gets 25% to answer its questions. Now, uh, we recognize that, um, so the, no, sorry, I should say, the, the project has two years to analyze the sample and six months to generate a sample catalog so that other scientists can, can request samples. However, we also recognize that some questions are of great interest to, uh, to our stakeholders, to the community, such as, say, the amino acid abundances, the, uh, uh, some of the basic characterization of the mineralogy. Uh, I, I expect that we'll do some of those analyses immediately. Uh, they perhaps a week uh, to conduct the analyses and do them right. Some of it depends on how much sample we have. If we have a beautiful bounty of lots and lots of sample, then uh, we can make decisions in, the, in favor of speed to get answers to the public quickly. If we are extremely sample limited because um, of bad luck or, or what have you, uh, then we need to make sure that we use every microgram of sample uh, exquisitely carefully. Uh, so that will cost time. Before that happens, though, it actually has to collect the sample, and that's that's kind of the next big milestone in this mission, right? Um, can, can you walk me through uh, what's happening a little bit later this month? Uh, what can we expect? The spacecraft has spent, uh, since arriving um, uh, December 3rd, uh, what was that, 2018, uh, analyzing the asteroid, uh, doing uh, orbits, in fact, a world's record for the uh, smallest body ever orbited and the closest uh, orbit ever taken by a spacecraft, um, to find uh, the context of the asteroid, map it, uh, find the most exciting and safest sampling sites. We've down-selected to one, called Nightingale. Uh, we have d conducted two rehearsals of that sampling site. What's next is October 20th, 2020. Uh, the spacecraft will depart its orbit and uh, go through the two checkpoints that were in our, uh, in our rehearsal and slowly descend to the surface of the asteroid, uh, touch it with uh, what's effectively like a backwards old cart air filter on the end of a three meter long pogo stick. Obviously not made from spare parts, but a, a bespoke uh, configuration designed for the spacecraft for this asteroid. Uh, the, uh, the sampling arm touches the surface of the asteroid for a couple seconds, shoots a jet of nitrogen gas, and that jet stirs up the regolith and it gets trapped in this, this cage and this filter um, called the TAGSAM. The spacecraft then uh, leaves the surface of the asteroid. It just does a simple bounce, gets out, uh, goes back to a safe position. We measure the, the mass of the sample. We look at the sample, make sure it's there. If everything's okay, we tuck it away in the sample return capsule, cut the sample, the uh, TAGSAM head off of that three meter long pogo stick. We have to sever it, so that's a, uh, a, a final operation. We can't, so if we decide we want to go back, uh, we have to make sure that we are absolutely done. The spacecraft then departs for Earth. 
arrives 2023, and then uh, the major science begins. We, the spacecraft has three nitrogen bottles, so we can collect three samples if we need to. We don't want to, uh, but if there is, if our sampling attempt on the 20th uh, turns out to be off nominal, either we back away before touching the surface and don't expel any nitrogen gas, we can try again. Uh, if we do touch the surface and expel nitrogen gas, and but the collection is off nominal for whatever reasons, like a, an unfortunate rock was in the way, and we don't have enough sample, we can go back again, we can go to the backup site and sample there. We've been speaking with Jason Dworkin, and he is the project scientist for OSIRIS-REx and a research scientist at the Goddard Space Flight Center. Jason, thanks so much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We've been following OSIRIS-REx since its launch back in 2016. You can find our coverage online at wmfe.org slash space, or visit the archives of this show. That's at wmfe.org slash are we there yet? And stay up to date on the Milestone Mission event October 20th. Be sure to check out asteroidmission.org. Still to come, Deep Space Delivery, Are We There Yet, is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Gateway is a mini space station set to orbit the moon. But what's a space station without supplies? Kennedy Space Center's Mark Weiss heads the agency's Deep Space Logistics Program. He joins us now to talk about the plan to ship food, water, and spacesuits to the moon to help supply astronauts on future missions in the next few years. Weiss kicks off the conversation explaining NASA's Deep Space Logistics Plan. Yeah, so we're, we have that, it's kind of that mix of what commercial resupply is for space station, bring cargo up to space station, we're that for, for cislunar and deep space exploration. So, you know, Orion will bring the crew. We think about shuttle. Shuttle was a, a transport to bring the crew and a truck to bring all the cargo. So we've kind of split that apart and de-aggregated it. So now, the, and we're that truck. We're going to bring up all the supplies the crew needs, bring up experiments, bring up food, spacesuits, all the things to help us continue to grow and learn and live out there. That's kind of what we're responsible for. And we're doing it. We're doing it in that CRS vein, taking the knowledge Kennedy Space Center has with launch services program, commercial crew program, and buying a commercial service. And we're looking with Deep Space Logistics to expand that service so we're not just bringing the cargo module, but we're we're all things transportation to get out there. Anytime we need to bring cargo, if we need to bring another module, we can bring that up there. If we're bringing things back off the surface, maybe we can get to that point where we're bringing things home. We want to be that transportation system out in deep space. You mentioned CRS, which is the cargo resupply that um, NASA has been partnered with uh, private companies to bring supplies to the space station. You're saying you're you're utilizing that same model um, to bring stuff to uh, Gateway, right? Yep. Yep. That same model. And we're, you know, we're really, we have a firm fixed price contract. We've, we awarded that at the end of March to SpaceX and it's a 15 year contract with a $7 billion cap. And we've got an on-ramp ability where we can bring in other companies along the way so we can continually drive competition. And we've got that longevity set up where we're leveraging things that, that the commercial space world is starting to mature so that we don't have to focus too much on the, on the early on development. We're really trying to turn those things into commercial services to help drive that economy. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about um, how SpaceX is going to be getting stuff there. Um, what's kind of the plan right now? Yeah, so SpaceX bid a, a solution, what we're calling Dragon XL. So Dragon XL is a, a heavy variant of, of what you see with Dragon Cargo. So they're taking all the, 
the internal guts and systems of what they've developed from commercial cargo and commercial crew from the Dragon spacecraft and repackaging that into what's Dragon XL. So it'll be launched on a Falcon Heavy, get up there, it's got a service module and then a big logistics module, which is a habitable volume that the crew can be in and we can fill and pack with goods. And then again, the way we've set up our, our gateway logistics services contract is really to, to have two swim lanes, the one where we're bringing cargo and then another where we can leverage that, that you know, that bus, that commercial service module piece of Dragon XL and break that apart and use that to go transport and move other things in the cislunar environment and eventually pushing out to Mars. So the plan would be to kind of send the stuff that these astronauts are going to need before they get there, right? So we're, as you mentioned, you're talking like spacesuits. We're talking food and provisions and stuff. I mean, how important is that in the success of the Artemis um, missions to have that there before the astronauts get there? Yeah, it's it's very important to have that stuff before they get there. And when it's also kind of that just-in-time shipping concept as well. We, we need to we need to make sure we're ready to go and make sure Orion is on the path and we see a launch date in place and we need to be that ability to to launch as soon as we can before that and find that sweet spot. So we even we set up with Dragon XL, they can they can get there in a slower transport if we've got the ability to wait with some of our cargo and preposition things. But we've also set up the contract and the ability for us to kind of do what we call a fast transit and get there within 30 days. And, and make sure we can launch right before Orion. So it's kind of that just in time, keep the food fresh for the crew and, and have the ability to pack any last minute things that we realize we might need to bring on the trip. How does this kind of uh, change the way uh, mission managers think overall about the Artemis program? I've got to think that having this ability to get cargo there almost days before or weeks before a crew would get there has got to be helpful in, in the way you long-term plan for these things. How, how's it kind of changing the way that you plan a moon mission, uh, you know, different from Apollo? Yeah, yeah. You think about in the 60s and Apollo, how critical it was to, to not have, you know, changes along the way in what you're planning. So this gives us a lot more flexibility, gives us the ability to, to the things we've learned on space station, right? Things break in space. There's, there's, situations that pop up where we got to go replace a piece of hardware and commercial resupply to space station has been critical to make sure we can continue science continue operations now with going to the gateway going to the moon here again with artemis we've got kind of a, a much improved capability and system where we can we can flex and and make decisions and make changes at the last minute that we didn't have in the 60s and if we get to that point with multiple providers we get to that point where we have a, a you know a stronger cadence we get an annual mission and we grow to more than an annual mission that'll really help us leverage resupply all critical for us to go to mars you think about the length of that trip to get to mars we might need to send supplies while that spaceship's in route and have to update things along the way and this is starting to set up that capability for the agency what's kennedy space center's role in this um you know when you think about astronaut missions johnson space center gets all the glory uh what's ksc going to be doing uh with logistics and yeah so this is a huge new assignment for us we're really excited to have this project off as role um, you know, I think we're really leveraging on what Kennedy started 20 years ago with launch services program. Kennedy started that first push into fixed price commercial services and really has grown a huge cadre of expertise across the center of people that understand how to manage fixed price contracts. That's what led to the commercial crew program coming to Kennedy and having that center of excellence there. And now we have that with Deep Space Logistics and this project office. So I think it's a, a really great deal, a big piece of work for Kennedy Space Center. Mark, 
we've been talking a lot about how uh, Gateway and your work with the logistics um, is going to be helping Artemis missions. Um, are you thinking farther out? I mean, could this do more than just support, um, you know, human missions to the moon? Uh, is there anybody else interested in in hitching a ride uh, and, and getting their stuff to Gateway? Yeah, so you look at what the agency's done with CLIPS, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, and we've been in discussions with CLIPS. You see all these new providers, new vendors trying to leverage and on-ramp to that contract. And we kind of see a hand-in-hand -hand relationship with our Gateway Logistics Services contract and CLIPS. CLIPS is set up for those really high-risk tolerant customers. We want to send an instrument to the moon. You know, they're, they're really trying to spark that new commercial industry and, and understand new small businesses' ability to go leverage, set up this cislunar economy. But as the risk tolerance starts to change, right, NASA doesn't buy insurance. We can take a lot of shots on goal when we are high risk tolerant. But as we start moving towards human exploration, our risk tolerance changes. That's where GLS comes in and is set up. So we're really hoping we can have that that relationship where we work together. And as companies grow and mature off Eclipse, they could jump onto GLS and help serve the agency in new ways there. And then you look at where, you know, where our country's going with Space Force and all the collaboration that's gonna happen. You know, we definitely see this capability as something that's critical to our entire, you know, national posture, at, you know, as an agency and as a United States of America. And are, are there any plans to kind of take what you've learned from, um, you know, gateway logistics um, and, and bring it back here a little bit closer to Earth. I'm wondering if there's any applications um, closer to home. Yeah, so we, we've, right from the start, we worked hard, you know, Bridenstine set this lead and has done a great job, I think, working to communicate and make sure NASA does its best to communicate, especially to non-traditional audiences. We have tons of space fans out there, lots of, you know, nerdy and geeky people who understand what we do and love what we do. But we have to do a better job explaining to the general public and early on, we, we decided to vector in and really communicate to the terrestrial logistics ground force, you know, the, the, the people that have allowed us to survive in this COVID environment. I mean, the doorbell is ringing when, you know, we've got a delivery truck coming constantly. So we've been trying to communicate to that world of how goods gets moved across our earth. And if you think about the history there, we haven't really sped that up very much in the past 50 years. You know, I mean, we still are using cargo ships and cargo planes to move things across the globe. So we're trying to communicate with them, hey, NASA is the research and development leg for our government. And we should think about partnering because the things we're investing in, the things we're buying down early risk in and research and development will play forward to logistics here on the earth. And you know, just recently we saw the Air Force put out a, a study just this past week where they're looking at taking the payload that a C-17 might move across the globe and finding ways to leverage rockets to move that around a lot faster. Right. We've been speaking with Kennedy Space Center's Mark Weiss. Mark, it was so great to see you, even if it's just virtually <laughs> this time. But thanks for joining us. Thanks, Brendan. Great to see you, too. Thanks for having us. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Stay listening. Next week, we'll chat with retired NASA astronaut Terry Verts about life as an astronaut from training for the space shuttle mission to restocking the toilet on the space station. We've got lots of ways to stay connected until our next show. You can give us a follow on Twitter. We're at AWTY Space. You can also now find us on Instagram. It's at AWTY Space. And we're on Facebook. If that's your thing, just search for Are We There Yet? Podcast. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nelly Ontiveros. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.